this podcast, we're talking to Vic Seidler, author of Making Sense of Brexit, part of the Policy Press 21st Century Standpoint series. Vic is Emeritus Professor in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London. His writing and research focuses on the cultural memory of particular events, including 9-11, 7-7, and now, of course, Brexit. After the shock decision to leave the EU in 2016, what can we learn about our increasingly unequal society and the need to listen to each other? Vic's book addresses the causes and implications of Brexit and explores the moral anger against political elites and the effect of people feeling estranged from a political and economic system that no longer expresses their will. Hi Vic, welcome. Hi. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about your own identity, how this affected your reaction to Brexit and how it informed your research and writing. I think we can all remember where we were and how we felt on the morning of the 24th of June 2016. How did you feel on waking up to the Brexit result and how did this lead to you writing the book? Well, I both expected that something terrible could happen and had been worrying for the weeks before. Okay. And then I was really hit, as so many people were, by the murder of Joe Cox and the way that for a moment it seemed like the country might come to its senses, that a line had been crossed that some terrible work had been done by UKIP and Farage in the poster that they presented. Yes. So there was a feeling or a hope, there was a feeling and a hope that somehow, even though I thought things were going badly, that at the last minute um, people would see sense. So I stayed up most of the night, and when the Sunderland result came in, I thought, this could go really badly. I just mm -hmm. felt something about the enthusiasm that was there, the kind of energy that was there in that leave moment. As the result was announced. As the result yeah. was announced, I thought this energy, this kind of extreme joy that something was going in their way, even when it in those areas often it was unexpected, so I really reckoned in that time before that there was something in the impartiality, supposedly, of the BBC and media reporting that made it very difficult to understand how so much had shifted in the country and people were determined to come out and vote leave. So as both a sociologist and a person yourself with European legacy, you mentioned that writing the book was part of you making sense of all this, making sense of Brexit. Could you tell us more about this and why it was important to you? Yeah, I was trying to kind of understand why it was that I was so shocked. Mm -hmm. And I realised that my family, as being of a Jewish migrant family, mm -hmm. that had come to Britain in the 1930s. I'd felt that I'd been brought up and the contract in my family was that I was to become English. I was to belong, I was to learn to assimilate and accommodate. And and I did that. And I did that through intellect, I did that through university education. Yeah. I felt like I was somehow like everybody else. And this moment of Brexit cut deep and made me realise I was vulnerable in my uh, self. You become the other. Again, I had suddenly, in a way. I had become the other, I had become the possible source of attack. 
I felt a sense of fear that I thought, I need to try and write out of this fear and I need to try and make sense of a kind of effective politics. That the idea that that the Remain campaign could just present a kind of economic argument that people would lose and that corporations would somehow tell people that their jobs were at risk and the economy was at risk. Mm. It seemed quite clear pretty early on in the writing that that was an inadequate explanation and that had failed. And the process of research and writing became for you a way of addressing that fear and loss of hope. Yeah. Okay. And that's always there in the writing, I think, in sociology and social research, particularly in ethnographic work. Okay. There are deeper reasons for why often people are drawn into the research projects that they're drawn into. Mm -hmm. And often the projects, even if they're presented in kind of scientific terms, we're often changed by the projects that we do. And in this particular project, it wasn't just a question of cultural memory for me. It was a question of trying to make sense of fears and where the next attack might come from. So thinking about how you felt and how your identity played a big part in deciding to do this research and writing, um, how did you, what was your methodology and how did you approach your research? One of the things you say in the book is how um, people often feel like they're the objects of research rather than being part of it. Um, How did that play out for you and how you went about things? I felt in some ways sociology was being challenged in quite a dramatic way Mm -hmm. in terms of the available and prevailing kind of scientific methodologies. Mm. Um, That people could just rely on the data as was being produced. That people needed a different form of interpretive methodology which would allow people to listen at different levels to what people were saying. So often people's feelings about Europe or about immigration had very complicated connections to changes that were happening in their own communities. Right. And often the closing of key shops, the way in which communities had been transformed almost beyond recognition, and the absence of language that sociology had really provided or helped Mm. to understand some of these kind of structural changes that were really happening. So that often people explained those changes through higher levels of immigration or the speed of immigration Mm. because there wasn't an alternative political language in which to understand how places that had been important in shaping your identity major shops that might exist in a particular town had closed and in their closing there was a feeling of a kind of disorientation and a kind of lack of of knowing the place that you lived in and often that was projected into feelings of anti-immigration. So part of what you were doing was linking the broader sociological picture with that minutiae of people's day-to-day lives and showing how stories are told through that. Yes, and in understanding what the stories are, how people are making sense of their own experience. Yes. you you are you're seeing reflected larger structural transformations mm. 
and that those larger structural transformations, which sociology is actually quite good at accounting for, changes in neoliberalism and changes in the cultural framing of a neoliberal culture. I see. And the way in which um, new labour had left its imprint on the feelings that people had that politics wasn't really engaging or representing them. Yes. You can read that back from... Um, from the ethnographic work or the more detailed, what m- might be regarded as personal work. Yeah. So feminist methodologies and queer methodologies that have focused on the question of voice mm-hmm. were really important to me. And the feminist methodology, which said that you weren't in some way separate from the people that you were talking to, and that there was always an encounter like this encounter that yeah. we're having in this context. Yeah. There were always two people involved in that. And you have to understand both what you're bringing yeah. into that encounter and also what the larger structures that are making themselves felt through those more personal shapings. Yes. Um, was there anything that particularly surprised you or was un- unexpected that you discovered in the research? One of the striking things in the Leave campaign was just how many people were determined to vote. Yeah. Way beyond anything that had any kind of explanation in in standard kind of political sociology. I think because it was a yes or no, all of a sudden people felt like this was an opportunity where they could make a difference. Well, I think people felt angry and resentful. Mm, because, yeah, because and they of wanted that, yeah. to be able to kind of make their anger felt and they did realize that there was something different in a referendum campaign from an ordinary parliamentary campaign so in a parliamentary campaign unless you're in a marginal constituency your vote can easily be discounted and in new labor strategy working class people had no place to go to outside the labor party Mm-hmm. And people resented being taken for granted mm-hmm. in that kind of way. And they felt no longer represented. And so that anger and frustration led to a determination to vote, which went, and people say there were many different reasons, and there obviously were, mm-hmm. that led back to deindustrialization, led mm-hmm. back to a kind of neoliberal economy and led back to years of austerity. Mm. So there were lots that people were really enraged about. But there were also factors about growing inequality in the society over the last 10 or 15, 25 years. And the sense that that inequality meant that people's voices were not only not heard, but their whole experience was not being reflected in the political process. So what was striking was when they voted they were determined and when they won Mm -hmm. that was why in the year since two two and a half years Mm -hmm. since people have been both both determined to stay with their vote and to have that vote heard so that even though the evidence of the fact that the communities that voted to leave could well be the communities that would be most hurt by the leave and that's becoming more and more evident particularly in the last week uh, with the Honda closing in Swindon, 3,000 yeah. jobs in a, in a constituency which was 70% leave. So there's a whole way in which um, social, economic, political and intimate life has been entangled and transformed for a younger generation. 
I think that's one of the interesting things, isn't it? Because I think it was quite a high percentage of the Leave vote was older, and yet it will be the younger generations most affected by it. But this comes on to a bit more discussion of the content of the book. Um, you explore all these causes and implications of Brexit, and we talk about um, divisions between old and young, north and south, and theories around race and class. Um, one thing you address in the book that I was particularly interested in, and I don't think has been covered to such an extent elsewhere, is gender. Uh, what role did gender play in the vote or the campaigns on either or both sides? And in particular, what role did masculinity play? Well, there was a rhetoric which was very strong where masculinity was quite central memories of empire and memories of a certain kind of white reasserted masculinity which has always been there on the political right but within the campaign was voiced in much stronger terms. So I think the questions around gender were absolutely um, central in the idea of control also, the idea of maintaining or sustaining control mm. has a kind of particular masculine resonance. Yes, yeah. And I think that was there in that campaign. It was actually quite central yeah. in shaping a kind of politics of we know we're not going to be soft, yes. we're not going to be threatened, yeah. we're going to stand up on our own and we're going to take that ground. So I think masculinity has been a really important element in different ways on both sides, and it really bears explanation. The book tries to engage with how that's happened and what that, what those tensions in male identity and how they're played out. So there was also a kind of old boys game between Boris Johnson and David Cameron Hammond. that went yeah. back. It was a kind of... Back competition, to the eaten days. Back to the eaten days and back mm. to this kind of male competition mm. without any sense. And almost because winning at any price, mm. the idea of the amount of money going on the, on the side of the bus and the NHS, any tactic that would allow you to win. So there were key moments when there was a kind of masculine ethos in winner takes all. Mm. even though 49% of the people in the country voted to remain. And it was clear from the beginning that the country was fu fundamentally divided mm. and that any premiership which was going to be able to carry the party, carry the country, would have to think across political parties, mm. would have to think about creating some form of agreement or consensus which would be a compromise. But that notion of compromise is rejected as a kind of female uh, form of politics that means yeah. accepting a certain form of vulnerability. And the idea, no, uh, this vote won, and it is for the rest of the country to fall behind and support it, meant that there was a kind of winner-takes-all framing that made it impossible. So the causes of the Brexit vote have not really been addressed over the last two and a half years. No. There's been a kind of silence both in the Tory party and within Labour about what the causes were. Why was it that so many people voted? Not only in the Tory shires, which we might have expected, where there's very strong middle class anti 
EU feeling, which has a long history, but also in traditional working class areas that came out and voted to leave. What was the explanation that was to be uh, responded to? And that moment almost passed when May walked into Downing Street. And said Brexit means Brexit. And said Brexit means Brexit. Mm. Taking on quite a masculine role as a female coming to power in this masculine competition. Yeah, and then having to show that she can hold her own. Yeah. And she does that by creating red lines. Yeah. In order to kind of feed the kind of decisions of the uh, European research group mm. and the DUP that she, after the election, becomes dependent on. So there's a moment that she crafts a hard Brexit yeah, um, and then goes to the country with the idea of stamping on Labour and winning a kind of overwhelming majority for the kind of Brexit that she wanted. But she failed, and she failed dramatically. Very dramatically. Um, so going back to the point of how we haven't we haven't fully looked at um, the causes and reasons people voted for Brexit. What were they voting for? So there was a sense of the kind of, also a sense of kind of growing inequalities that people had experienced over the 20 years. Um, the difficulties of getting housing. So it, at some level, um, immigration became the language through which some of these social inequalities were being voiced and articulated because it was both visible and there was a kind of sense that the immigration, particularly from Europe, that didn't have Commonwealth connections, didn't have the same kind of language culture, didn't have the same kind of shared histories. It meant that people felt that somehow they were unable to express um, their feelings about shifts in their own urban communities, the reorganization, transformation of cities and towns. Uh, without being accused of being racist. So the people felt excluded mm -hmm. and not heard, mm -hmm. and therefore their response was to stick with the decision that they'd made and to feel determined that whatever happened or whatever they hear, they were somehow still going to say, no, what we want is to leave and to leave on those terms. So their reasons for voting leave have only been compounded, really, over the last... I think they've been compounded also because of the silences particularly also within the Labour Party, yeah. where Corbyn has been unable to really engage or help people understand the situation as it's developed in time, mm -hmm. that the Labour Party withdrew into its own um, conditions mm. for leaving, yeah. but didn't really help people um, kind of understand the causes for why the anger was so deep. And even the manifesto, which was an important step, and a lot of people really wanted it and wanted Labour to win, uh, the feeling that the Labour leadership hasn't really shown leadership in relationship no. to Brexit. Or opposition. Or clear opposition, mm. that, they were, that they were able to pass the uh, Amendment 50 and that they were able to somehow, in their own manifesto, not really explore the detailed situation, but just say we're respecting the vote, while knowing that those very communities would be um, hurt, devastated, made to pay the price. That's been a wasted opportunity, hasn't it, on behalf of Labour? 
Um, so party, it, it's kind of become all about party politics now um, and the economic impact of the Leave vote. Um, I wondered if you could talk a bit about identity politics and why they're important, um, especially in relation to, you, you say in the book, there's a danger in returning to Marxist class politics. Um, we should be looking at identity politics. Well, I don't think we should be um, contrasting Marx class politics and identity politics. Oh, okay. I think we have to learn from both. Okay. And that um, the identity politics that were shaped post-68 with the women's movement, the black movement, the gay and queer movements, in all those terms there are really important lessons to learn for a kind of different kind of civil society and a different form of democracy. So um, what's happened often is that it was actually through identity politics that post-colonial uh, and notions of black subjectivity um, and questions of post-colonial subjectivities have actually been framed. So one of the dangers has been the way that identity politics has either been identified with the right or with the leave, or the left has abandoned or not really known how to think about identity politics without thinking that you're somehow fixing people into pre-given categories. Mm. The danger of that is that the right, including the Brexit vote, mm -hmm. has claimed identity politics as a kind of nationalist politics of its own. I see. In a way that I think is really dangerous. Yeah. So we need a way of reclaiming a different kind of identity politics that is, isn't seen in opposition to Marx and is not seen in opposition see. to Marx class politics or the growing inequalities that exist. So it's that the left are focus, focusing on Marx class politics and the right are using identity politics yeah. and that creates a problem. And questions about place and belonging or yeah. relationships of identity and belonging have to be as much part of a left politics because the sense of being rooted in one's own community or uprooted or questions of migration and questions of people moving across borders mm -hmm. have become and are going to become with global warming really significant issues in relationship to citizenship or new forms of citizenship. Mm. And what we've found in the last two and a half years is that, is that the party politics which has been enclosed within the parliamentary system, has been unable both to engage with the real issues of what caused Brexit in a, in a kind of real way. And there's a move towards some kind of centre ground. Mm -hmm. But even the notion of centre ground and two extremes mm. is a really difficult picture because a lot of the young people or a lot of the pro-European younger generation are radical, have been informed by socialist politics. So there's clearly going to be um, long-term political consequences um, of the vote, whatever they may be at this point. It's hard to say. Because of what is clear is that the Remainer and Brexit, the Remainer and Leave identities are not just going to disappear. No. They move across traditional left-right yeah. distinctions. So there is some kind of realignment, mm. but it isn't a realignment that can simply be framed in terms of party politics. Um, I wanted to talk about the longer term 
social consequences of the vote as well. Um, so we've seen increased racism, sexism, generational conflict, and you outline a lot of those things in the book. Um, I was interested in a quote from Gary Young in the book saying that if Remain had won, we would already have returned to pretending that everything was carrying on just fine. So Brexit has brought social difference and inequality to the fore in a way that hopefully it can be addressed. Um, so in your opinion, what are the damaging long-term social consequences of the Brexit vote and are there any positives? Well, I think Gary Young is absolutely right on that if Cameron had won, uh, politics would have just carried on as normal. Um, and the fact that Leave won was a shock and it does bring questions of social inequality and social injustice to the centre of the political agenda and it can't be ignored no. but over the last two and a half years it has been ignored That's true. <laughs> in large part so yeah. um, Gary's thing is kind of right at one level but at another level the, the Brexit has been captured by a um, parliamentary discussion. So it's maybe a longer term. So there's a kind of longer term process of transformation. Mm -hmm. And when we think of transformation in terms of social theory, we're in a new space where some of the postmodern forms of social theory don't necessarily speak to um, the kind of realities that we're living with. No. And that sociology is a discipline which took a postmodern turn um, and which found it difficult to really engage with both moral and bring moral and political discussions into relationship with each other, somehow seeing morality as just another discourse. Mm -hmm. Somehow we need a new ethical politics which can see how questions of inequality are both moral and political questions and that a democratic society can't survive with these levels of inequality mm. and that the um, the destructive nature in terms of mental health and um, educational consequences of societies with such inequalities are being reaped so all that's about looking to the future and a quote from the book that I liked was you say we need a new narrative of social justice that allows a vision of post-Brexit Britain that can stay in close contact with the EU by also being an example of a country that works in the best interests of all its citizens. So kind of as a last question, what are the key lessons we can learn from making sense of Brexit that might help to make this possible? Whatever happens, we don't know in terms of the terms that we're going to leave. Mm -hmm. When we leave, mm. it still seems clear that these new political identities in terms of leave and remain are likely to really be there reframing people's political identities. Yes, yeah. So all those struggles are going to carry on. What it means in terms of a younger generation of people who have seen... Labour and Corbyn's Labour as a sign of hope. Mm -hmm. If they feel disillusioned, mm -hmm. where's that disillusionment going to go to? Yes. And what new forms of civic politics? Will they vote Green? Uh, will they vote for some new 
center space. Mm -hmm. They're much more radical than a center space suggests. They're concerned about global warming and the environment. Mm. And just as just before school children coming out over the country for global warming has reminded the failures of the conventional politics to really engage it. So questions of global warming and um, ecological questions about relationships to nature, the kind of agenda that the Green Party is in some way framed, could be the space that a younger people are moved towards in a disillusionment yeah. in a process if Brexit is seen as in some way um, supported or helped along by Corbyn's Labour. So mm. it's a very unstable and unsettled situation, mm. much more than is reflected by the parliamentary politics. I think this is a kind of moment... Um, 1956, 68, 89, these quite dramatic shifts in political process where Trump's experience in America, his visits to Britain, mm. the overwhelming resistance where Trump couldn't even land yeah. in Britain, shows that there are political forces that are framing themselves that want a different kind of democratic politics. Right. Whether they'll be able to uh, assemble and organize or reorganize themselves will be one of the main uh, issues in the years to come. Time will tell. Time will tell. Thank you. Thank you to Victor Seidler for talking to us. Vic's book, Making Sense of Brexit, is part of our 21st Century Standpoint series published in association with the British Sociological Association. Find out more on our website, policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.